You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I think it's good to stand for God's word when we have short passages. Jerry read a really long passage earlier, but let's stand for this one, I think, especially because this is a warning passage, and I don't want this to just be something we sit and hear, but I think it's good for us to stand and understand that we are under God's word. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to each of us, that your spirit would make proper application to each heart of this sober text. Lord, I'm reminded of Jesus' words, let him with ears hear what the Spirit says. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Davenport, Iowa is a city about the size of Sugarland, located on the Mississippi River, halfway between Chicago and Des Moines. And downtown Davenport contains some old buildings, one of which it uh, was a six-story apartment building about a hundred years old. In 2020, a massive storm came through the area and it shook this once sturdy building, causing significant structural damage. Some of the residents evacuated, many complained, but the owners didn't see a need to make a significant investment or change. They brought out an engineer who assured everyone that things are just fine. And so they seemed until this last Memorial Day when due to neglect and disrepair, a large portion of this building suddenly collapsed while people were living inside. Many were trapped in rubble for hours and when the debris was cleared, three residents were found to have died. Now, what happened in Davenport reveals an important truth. That long-term neglect leads to sudden collapse and disaster. That's true in engineering, and friends, that is true spiritually. And this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, we come to the first pastoral exhortation of this book in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. And today's passage is going to tell us plainly, we must not be neglectful of our spiritual lives. We must not respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ with disinterest, but with faith. And those who claim Christ must regularly attend to our walk with him so that we do not spiritually drift away into disaster. And these are the ideas we're going to see today as we consider three points. First, God was serious about his Old Testament revelation. Second, God is all the more serious about his supreme revelation in Jesus. And third, we must therefore heed the gospel of Jesus and not reject it or drift from it. We start with our first point. 
which is that God was serious about his Old Testament revelation. You know, Hebrews contains a ton of theology. We've seen that already in chapter 1. But why does our author make all these complex theological arguments that he makes? What is he driving towards? In Hebrews 13.22, our author calls this book, My Word of Exhortation. That is, the book of Hebrews is like a sermon. It's got a lot of theology, but the point isn't so that we learn a lot of theology. No, like all true theology, the point is that our lives are to be shaped, they're to be transformed. And so our author's theological arguments serve as the basis for his pastoral exhortations, his warnings that he gives throughout this book. Now, why does our author give these warnings? Because he's concerned about some things that he knows are going on in the church that he's writing to. He perceives that at least some of his readers have become spiritually lethargic and lazy. Though they had professed Jesus for a long time, they had settled for spiritual immaturity. They looked at their spiritual lives and said, I'm good. I don't need to tend to these things anymore. And so they neglected their spiritual lives. And the result was spiritual drift. They began drifting away from Christianity. And you know, when you begin drifting away from one thing, you start drifting towards something else. And as these people became decreasingly interested in Jesus, they became increasingly interested in associating themselves with Old Covenant Judaism, the religion of the Old Testament. Now, it's easy to see why they would have found this an attractive thing, moving from Christianity to Judaism. As we're going to see later in this book, their church had been persecuted. Just like in much of our world today, Christianity is hated. Being a Christian was dangerous. But in that world, what was not dangerous was practicing Judaism. Judaism was somewhat accepted throughout the Roman world. And those who practiced Judaism found a welcoming community. So our author's concerned. He sees that his readers are making this move which they might decide is a pretty good place to, to land. Maybe they're going to keep drifting away from Jesus and just keep blending into Judaism. And our author is worried that where this may end up is that his readers may wind up making no profession of Jesus at all if this continues unchecked. That their drift would prove not to be merely the backsliding of a tripped-up Christian who eventually comes to his senses and returns where he needs to be, but that this drifting away might instead prove to be a falling away. It might lead to apostasy, the total repudiation of the Christian faith, which marks someone as having never truly belonged to Jesus in the first place. And so the burden of this book is to warn, to exhort the original readers, do not leave Jesus for Judaism. Because as the theology of this book shows, Jesus is better than everything in Judaism. That's the big idea. Now in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, we come to the first exhortation. And this warning builds on everything in chapter 1. So let's look at this passage now, and we're actually going to look at the verses out of sequence because I think that will help us transition from what we saw last week a little bit more easily. So let's begin today in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. This verse is a great bridge back to chapter 1. Because you might remember in Hebrews 1, our author shows us, that God's revelation in Jesus is better than his revelation in the Old Testament. This is very clear from the book's opening verses. Look back at Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God spoke in the Old Testament. But that revelation was fragmentary. It came in pieces 
revealed progressively across long periods of time. And it was diverse. It was not given in one uniform way, but through a variety of methods. In contrast, God has given his supreme word in Jesus at one place, in one time, in one clear way, in a human who shares the divine nature fully. Jesus is truly God and truly man. And so he is the supreme revelation of God. He is God's final word. He is better than the Old Testament writings. But then in chapter 1, verses 5 to 14, we saw that Jesus was compared to the angels. And at first we might think, well, this is a new comparison that has nothing to do with that stuff about Jesus and the Old Testament. But that's not right. And we discover that in chapter 2, verse 2. Here is why our author spent so much time in last week's passage comparing Jesus to the angels. Because the angels had a role in transmitting the Old Testament revelation. That's what our author means when he speaks of the message declared by angels. He's talking about the Old Testament law. Now, last week I said that we are never told in the Old Testament that God gave his law to Moses through the angels. But this was widely believed by ancient Jews, and they were right. The New Testament tells us that plainly. In Acts 7.53, Stephen, right before he's murdered by the Jewish mob, says, You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Or Paul in Galatians 3.19 says, the law was put in place through angels. And so chapter 1's comparison between Jesus and the angels is yet another argument that shows that Jesus is better than the Old Testament. Because Jesus is better than the angels, the revelation that has come through Jesus, the gospel, is better than the revelation that has come through the angels, the Old Testament. That's where chapter 1 got us. But now here in chapter 2, we're reminded of an important truth. That while Jesus is better than the Old Testament, that does not invalidate the Old Testament. On the contrary, the Old Testament is truly God's word. That's what our author says here. That the word that came through the angels, the law, was reliable. This Greek term is a legal word. Today's passage is filled with legal terms. And this term means that something is legally binding. And indeed, friends, God's Old Testament revelation was legally binding. God required ancient Israel to observe his law and heed his prophets. And we know that because God rigorously enforced the Old Testament. People's transgressions, their sins, their doing things God forbade, and their disobediences their failure to observe God's commands were all severely punished. Now, if you study the Old Testament law, what you will find is that when there were laws that dealt with property, violations usually triggered a severe financial penalty. Usually fourfold restitution was required. For interpersonal injuries, the basic rule was an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth. But often the law required more than that. It imposed the death penalty for a large number of interpersonal crimes, sexual crimes, and religious crimes. Moreover, Numbers 15 verse 30 says this, the person who does anything with a high hand reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So when the law was violated, in addition to the ordinary penalties required for the underlying offense, Numbers 15 said if that sin was committed with a high hand, it was subject to the severest individual penalty. And you say, well, what is this sin committed with a high hand? It is the most brazen, intentional, defiant sin. And God said any sin like that must be punished with the person being cut off. And if you do the word study on this Hebrew term, here's what you'll find. 
The penalty of being cut off begins with death, but it goes beyond physical death. It speaks of God utterly terminating the sinner's hope. Because this term cut off is often used to describe God bringing an end to somebody's family line. Psalm 109.13 says, May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the next generation. This term is also sometimes presented as the opposite of being gathered to one's fathers in the afterlife, in, in which cases this word speaks of eternal punishment. And so this severest individual penalty under the law spoke of being put to death mortally in the body, and it spoke of God utterly extinguishing the hope of the sinner. Friends, this is a severe penalty. And that is how the Old Testament said God would deal with brazen intentional sin. As Paul said, the wages of sin is death indeed. God took sin against his Old Testament seriously. And that's just talking about individual sin. Let's talk about collective sin. Remember Korah? He led a rebellion against Moses' leadership. Numbers 16.31 said, The earth opened its mouth and swallowed Korah and his confederates up with their households, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them and they perished. That is an incredible demonstration of divine power. That is how God dealt with sin. And in fact, when Israel continued century after century in unrepentant sin, God made good on all those curses that Jerry read to us earlier from that grim passage of Deuteronomy 28. When God said, if you break my law, you will be visited by pestilence, drought, military defeat, supernatural plagues, foreign invasion. And friends, all these things happened. And ultimately, a nation did come who, as God said in Deuteronomy 28, 52, would besiege them in all their towns until their high and fortified walls in which they trusted came down throughout all their land. And indeed, they ate the fruit of their womb, the flesh of their sons and daughters, who the Lord gave them in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies distressed them. And that section ends, he says, You shall be plucked off the land. The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Friends, this is the most horrendous thing imaginable. And this happened in 586 B.C. God brought the Babylonians against Jerusalem. They surrounded the city. There was starvation. There was this kind of carnage. And the nation was ended. The people were scattered and taken into exile and slavery and dispersion. Friends, God decreed shocking judgments for Israel because they broke his law, because they disregarded the Old Testament word. And God was faithful to carry those penalties out. You know, we like the truth of God's faithfulness when we think about his promises. But friends, God is faithful to all his word including his word of judgment. And we see that in the Old Testament. God said this is what disobedience will merit, and that's what happened. Now, all these penalties are incredibly severe. Are they not? But look back at Hebrews 2, too. These penalties are described as God's just retribution. Sometimes we read what the Bible says about God's judgment, and we think, this just seems so harsh. It's disproportionate. Does my sin really deserve God's anger like this? Is sin really that bad? But friends, when we ask that question, we're asking the same question that led Eve to humanity's downfall. The question that the serpent hissed. Has God said? Friends, imagining that sin doesn't merit God's judgment is a perspective tainted by our fallen condition and our sinful reasoning. When we think like this, it's because we do not see the full measure of our offense against a holy God who is owed our absolute allegiance, who is eternal and is therefore eternally offended by our sin. Friends, our sin is far worse 
than we know. And if you have questions about that, look to the cross. At the torments Jesus experienced as he bore our sin in his body on the tree. That is what our sin deserves. And if we say, well, I've got a problem with this, friends, then that's a problem of unbelief. Because that is what God has said. And God is righteous. As Abraham says in Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He will. And this is what he says sin deserves. So understand, when we see the wrath of God in the Old Testament or the New, God is not being excessive in his anger. No, our sin is excessive in its offense. And God's punishments are just. And here we see that through those punishments, God was very serious about his Old Testament revelation. But we come now to our second point, which is that God is all the more serious about his revelation in Jesus. Look now at Hebrews 2 verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, this word, therefore, tells us that what follows is the conclusion that we are to take away from everything described in chapter 1. And here's the conclusion. We must pay much closer attention. To what? Well, not the Old Testament law, because as the opening verses of this book declare, the Old Testament belongs to a different era, the era of long ago. The Old Testament was not spoken to us, it was spoken to our fathers, Hebrews 1 says. No, God's word in these last days, God's word which he has spoken to us, chapter 1 says, is his son. That's the revelation the original readers of this book were accountable to, and that is the revelation that we are accountable to, friends, because we also live in these last days. We live on this side of the cross. Now look at how God's revelation in Jesus is described in verse 3. As such a great salvation. The content of God's ultimate revelation is not a written document. It is, it is, it is the person and saving work of the Son. Now what does it mean that Jesus and his saving work are great? Well, Jesus' salvation is great in that it's terrific. It's wonderful. It's excellent. And it's great in that it is massive. It brings many sons to glory. And in the end, it will lead to the recreation of, of the heavens and the earth. But here, ultimately, God's revelation in Jesus is such a great salvation comparatively. Compared to the Old Testament, the salvation won by Jesus is vastly better in how it discloses God and his character. Jesus' death and resurrection show us perfectly God's love and holiness, his grace and justice, his mercy and wrath, his sovereignty and omnipotent power. The salvation won by Jesus is also much greater in effect than the revelation of the Old Testament. Think about all those sacrifices. Did they really ultimately take away sin once for all? No, but Jesus' death did. Jesus is greater. That's the idea of chapter 1. And because of that truth, we must not drift away from Jesus. That's what our author is saying to his readers. Do not reject the final for the partial. Do not abandon the supreme for the inferior. Do not retreat from Jesus back into Judaism. Stay with Jesus. That's the idea. But the original readers who were tempted to go into Judaism might wonder, how do I really know that what you're saying is true? After all, I know the Old Testament is God's word. Look how rigorously he enforced it. Is there any proof like that that shows that God stands behind Jesus so that I can really know he's better? And the answer is yes, there is. And our author summarizes the reasons that we can trust in the reality and superiority of Jesus beginning at the end of verse 3. He says, it, this great salvation, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Why should we believe Jesus is better? Well, our author uses a ton of legal terms here to show that he is building a case explaining how the history of the gospel proves its truth. And he breaks this history down into four proofs. 
Proof one is that the great salvation of the gospel was declared at first by the Lord. The Christian gospel is reliable because its source is Jesus. And Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God in human flesh. And as he walked on the earth, he preached the gospel. Same gospel the apostles preached, the same one we preach. Now today some people say, oh, Jesus didn't preach the gospel because they've got a false theological agenda. They want to drive a wedge between Jesus and the apostles. But the evidence is clear. Consider Jesus' first sermon in Matthew 4.17, in which he preaches, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just a few chapters later in Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples to preach this message. Matthew 10.7, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message. Or Paul explains the gospel like this in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And Jesus said the same thing. Matthew 16, 21. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. See, the apostolic gospel was first preached by Jesus. Jesus is its source, and so we can trust it because it came from God himself. Proof two. The great salvation of the gospel was transmitted to us by reliable eyewitnesses. Hebrews 2 says it was attested to us by those who heard. When Jesus walked the earth, he met thousands of people who heard him preach. But our author says that his readers were not in that number. They did not hear Jesus preach for themselves. Note also that our author puts himself in this same category. He says that he too did not meet Jesus in the flesh. So how then did our author and the original readers wind up professing faith in Jesus? Because somebody preached it to them. And who did that? He says those who heard that is, those who witnessed Jesus' preaching and miracles. Those who saw him arrested and carried off to his death. Those who saw him raised from the dead. He's talking about the apostles who were the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and resurrection. Who then spent the rest of their lives going around the world proclaiming the gospel. Jesus told the apostles in John 15, 27, You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And when the apostles preached, they testified that they had personally witnessed the things they're declaring. So Peter says in Acts 10, We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear. The apostles were with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry to his ascension. They were the ones, he said, to go throughout the world and proclaim his gospel. And the apostles did that as eyewitnesses. And friends, the apostles still, to this day, proclaim the gospel to us. Now, I'm not saying there are apostles on the earth today. There aren't. There are no eyewitnesses who walked alongside Jesus left in the earth today. But friends, we have the apostolic writings. We have the testimony and the recollections and the instruction of the apostles. This is how we have access, reliable access, to the truth about Jesus today. But you say, why should I trust the apostles? Because every one of them was persecuted for their faith. They were arrested and tortured because they said Jesus was Lord and that he had been raised from the dead. Almost all of them died as martyrs. And when they faced their deaths, they did not recant their testimony. They did not deny Jesus. No, they kept on proclaiming him, though it cost them their lives. Now, if you were an apostle and you knew it was all fake, you knew Jesus was still dead, would you go through torture to maintain your lie? Would you die to maintain your lie, knowing that you would then face God and his judgment for lying about him? No way. So the fact that all the apostles, despite torture and martyrdom, maintained their testimony about Jesus points to the truthfulness of their proclamation. And so we can trust the gospel because it was witnessed by the apostles. Proof three. The great salvation of the gospel was witnessed by God himself. Look at verse four of Hebrews two. 
God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. The Father worked all kinds of miracles in the ministry of Jesus, right? The lame were enabled to walk, the blind could see, lepers were healed, the dead were raised, thousands of people got fed from a few pieces of bread. Jesus did miracles that were so amazing, even his enemies couldn't deny them. They said, oh, well, well Satan's empowering this. But no, Jesus' miracles were the Father's testimony that Jesus is his son. John 10, 25, Jesus says, The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In John 14, 10, Jesus says, Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works, that is, the works he did. And of course, the supreme work, the supreme miracle that attested Jesus by the Father is the resurrection. Romans 1, 4 says he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In the resurrection, the Father showed that Jesus was his Son. In the same way, the Father attested the truthfulness of the gospel by empowering the apostles to work miracles. Acts 5.12 says, Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now, when we read about that, sometimes we start to get really excited and think, hey, I want to see a miracle, like an apostolic miracle. But I want to remind you that what this passage is telling us is that the signs and wonders done by the apostles or Jesus were never meant to stand alone. It was never just about having a miracle. The miracles always accompanied gospel preaching because the miracles always served to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. If you have questions about this, go home today and read the book of Acts and look at all the miracles. And what you will find is that they are always in conjunction with and in support of gospel preaching. So yes, at the beginning of the faith, miracles of healing and speaking in tongues and prophecy and so forth were a significant way that God proved the gospel was real. But should we seek such things today? Well, friends, when we are sick or desperate in life, we should absolutely call out to God and pray for a miracle. We should pray big prayers because nothing is too hard for God. And God can certainly grant a big miracle in our lives, and he's done that for many of us at times. But in terms of seeking after people who claim to wield miraculous powers like the apostles did, friends, we should not seek after such folks. The truth is, faith healers, wonder workers, and so-called apostles today are frauds, preying upon the weak and helpless to enrich themselves. Now, not everyone who claims to practice the miraculous sign gifts of the early church is a crook, like faith healers. I think many charismatic Christians are well-intentioned. I believe they are profoundly mistaken. Because the writings of the early church tell us unequivocally that the miraculous sign gifts ended in the first centuries of church history. And even most charismatics today will admit that for the vast history of Christianity, the miraculous gifts had died out. The charismatic claim is that they have revived only recently. But if you investigate it, what you'll find is that the miracles that are alleged to be performed by charismatics today have very little in common with what is found in the Bible. So I think we should understand that this era of God attesting the gospel through apostolic miracles has ended. But this passage tells us at the beginning of the faith, this is something God did to prove the truthfulness of the apostles' preaching. And this is something the original readers of this book apparently saw when they came to faith. But this brings us to proof four. The great salvation of the gospel was attested in the Hebrews' local church through the exercise of spiritual gifts. Look at verse 4. God also bore witness by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, what are spiritual gifts? Well, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us spiritual gifts are empowerments and abilities God gives believers to help us serve and build up the local church. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Spiritual gifts come from the Holy Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 12, 4 says, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. 
God gives everyone, that is every believer, at least one spiritual gift. And there's a vast diversity of spiritual gifts. We're not all gifted in the same way. But the diversity of gifts builds up and enriches the church. And every gift, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 11, is empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the Spirit assigns gifts to each believer, which we are to use to serve the local church. Now, there are many lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible. None are comprehensive. But I think the most helpful categorization is found in 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So spiritual gifts basically come in two varieties, speaking and serving. And so, whether someone is gifted at Bible teaching or administration, at encouraging others or doing building maintenance, at music ministry, or just being a helpful soul when you need help. The Holy Spirit stands behind and empowers the services that we each render for our church's common good. And our author says this is the fourth proof that the gospel's true. He tells his readers, your church has spiritual gifts. You have true preaching and teaching. You have brothers and sisters who serve one another. So he says, can you not perceive That the work that's being done in your midst is evidence that the Holy Spirit is present and active. Can you not see that God is at work in your church through the gospel of Jesus? That's a proof that the gospel's true. And friends, I hope you see that this proof is true in this church. I hope when you come here and listen to God's word, you are aware the Spirit is at work, making the Bible clearer to you, drawing you closer to Jesus, changing your life and affections. As you see other people serving here, We're serving people in need, like the service done for our brother Neil recently. You see, the Spirit is at work in our midst. Friends, God is at work. He is alive and active among us, and we see that when we use our gifts. And the more people who get involved, encouraging one another and serving one another, the more we're going to see that. But this is an ongoing proof that God stands behind his gospel. And so these four proofs, that the gospel comes from Jesus, that it was witnessed by the apostles, that it was attested by miracles, and by the use of spiritual gifts in the church, all show that the gospel is true, which means that chapter 1 is true. God has given a superior word to the Old Testament. He has spoken in Jesus, and the salvation Jesus has won by his death and resurrection. And so just as God's judgments show that he took the Old Testament seriously, the history of the gospel shows he takes... the revelation in Jesus, even more seriously. But this brings us to our concluding point, which is that we must heed the gospel of Jesus and not reject it or drift from it. Jesus is God's final word. We've got to respond appropriately to him with repentant faith. But in verse 3, our author is worried that some of his readers are responding to the gospel terribly as he speaks of them neglecting it. What does he mean? The Greek word translated neglect means to ignore, disregard, or reject something. And just as the ancient Israelites neglected God's law, our author is worried that some of his readers are on this same path, neglecting and disregarding God's salvation in Jesus. And he warns plainly, if we do that, the result is unfathomably terrible. Look at verse 3. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If God took the Old Testament seriously and severely punished every sin against that revelation, and God takes his revelation in Jesus even more seriously, then my goodness, what's going to happen to us if we reject the gospel? Something far worse than any of those terrible penalties we saw in the Old Testament say, well, what's worse than that stuff? Hebrews tells us in the other warning passages. Hebrews 10.27 says, There is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hebrews 6.8 says, Its end is to be burned. It's talking about hell. You know, Jesus warns about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Listen to his descriptions. Mark 9. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
in Matthew 13, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is an awful reality of torment and anguish, of endless decay and burning, an unquenchable, eternal fire. Revelation 14.11 says, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. This is a horror beyond imagining. This is far worse than the severest penalties of the law. And friends, hell is real. And we all know people who are going there. And maybe some of us here today are on the path to hell. We all need to know a day is coming when Jesus will return to this earth and he will judge the living and the dead. And Hebrews 2.3 says that when he comes back, everyone who has ignored or dismissed his gospel will face this awful, inescapable penalty. Remember Revelation 6 where the people cry to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is on the throne? 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. On the last day, people will seek to escape the judgment of Jesus and it will be too late. Friend, hide yourself in Jesus today while there is an opportunity to avoid the judgment that is coming on this world. Now, how do we do that? Jesus says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. We've got to repent. We need to understand that we have each sinned against God. We have lived and served ourselves rather than him. And in Matthew 7, Jesus says that is the broad road that is leading to destruction. Friends, we've got to exit that road. Because if we stay on the course we're on, we're going to wind up in hell forever. And we exit that road by turning to Jesus in faith. Believing that he is who he said he was, God in the flesh. Believing that his death and resurrection are the only basis on which we can stand before God. We've got to respond to his call to follow me. To not keep living like we've lived in the past, but to now follow Jesus. That's conversion. Friends, we've got to be saved. Turn to Jesus and live. That is our only way to avoid the wrath that is coming. But while our author uses this word neglect in verse 3, which speaks of ignoring or rejecting something. It's also clear from the rest of this book that the original readers had not explicitly rejected the gospel. Most of them were still making professions of faith in Jesus. So why does our author feel a need to warn professing Christians about the consequences of rejecting the gospel? Is it because our author thinks that we can lose our salvation? No. In Hebrews 5, he says, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation, to all who obey him. Our author believes in eternal security. And the Bible tells us that God secures us and God is the one who brings us safely home. Jude 24 calls God him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Philippians 1 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. And yet the Bible maintains attention. It tells us that God perseveres us and then it tells us to persevere. It tells us that God secures us, and then it warns us, don't fall away. And our author knows that sometimes people profess faith, and it winds up being false. And what proves that it's false? Apostasy, repudiating the faith. That shows that someone's prior profession wasn't real. That's why our author says things like Hebrews 3.14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Real faith perseveres to the end. False faith doesn't. And as our author looks at his readers, he is concerned. He'll tell us in chapter 6, he thinks that most of them are saved, but he sees some of their lives are wavering. He's starting to worry that maybe some of his readers really aren't saved. And he has this worry because he doesn't want to see them fall away. He wants them to truly be saved. So he says, you can't keep doing what you're doing. He warns his readers, and friends, that is a loving thing to do, warning somebody on a dangerous path. And he tells them, get back to where you need to be. And so he writes verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What our author wants from his audience, and what every true church leader wants to see, is that our people demonstrate a close attention to the gospel. 
But when he looked at his audience, he saw laziness and lethargy, a lack of commitment to Jesus, a lack of seriousness about the faith, a lack of desire to maintain a witness before unbelievers, a lack of obedience. And he sees this and he thinks, this is wrong. This is not how things should be. There should be a seriousness about the gospel and a fervency about God's word and a desire for spiritual maturity and an attentiveness about our lives that we walk in obedience. And we should want to be known as Christians and we should love our brothers and sisters in the church and regularly gather together. But he doesn't see this. He sees drift. It's a nautical term. Think of a boat just out there being carried away by the currents. And what our author says is if we are not being attentive to our spiritual lives, we're drifting. We're being pulled away from where we ought to be by external forces. And friends, this is an important insight. You will never grow in godliness accidentally. You will not drift your way into sanctification. People say, let go and let God. That is false, friends. If we let go, the world will take the wheel. And it will take us in any direction other than to Jesus. Maybe it will take us like the original readers to Judaism or to some other religion or philosophy or to materialism or to the bottle or drugs or sexual sin. Friends, the world wants to take you all kinds of places, but not to Jesus. We don't want to drift. But truthfully, we all drift sometimes because we're just dust and life is busy and there are many adversaries against us. So let us take an inventory of our lives right now and see where there might be some drift, where we might need to make a course correction. Do any of these scenarios sound familiar? You used to pray a lot, now not so much. You don't see the point. Is God there? Does he care? Or you used to read your Bible regularly, but not lately. It's not very interesting or relevant to my life anymore. Or you've made an accommodation with some sin which you used to know was wrong, which you used to fight, but now you rationalize it and you indulge in it and you're not too worried about it. Or you used to hold certain views that our world hates but that the Bible teaches clearly, like that marriage is between one man and one woman, or that there's just two genders, or that abortion is wrong. But now, you know, the Bible just seems so restrictive about these things. The culture seems more loving. Or maybe you used to believe biblical doctrines about God, sin, judgment, the gospel. But now you've got a new viewpoint, which sounds more appealing than what the scriptures say. Or maybe you just don't have interest in being around believers anymore, or attending corporate worship regularly, or being part of the church community. Friends, do you see drift in these or other areas? If so, it's time to make a course correction, to get active in our spiritual lives and head back towards Jesus. Because if we don't, if we remain neglectful, if we remain adrift for a long period of time, then we are like that apartment building back in Iowa. We are in danger of sudden collapse. And I know sitting here we might think, well, that's not going to happen to me. I'm immune from this. Coasting is not a big deal. I'm saved. I don't have to worry about this. Over the last five years, I've known a number of men in the ministry who spiritually drifted to the point where they renounced the faith who had shocking spiritual collapses seemingly out of nowhere. Two of these guys fell into Roman Catholicism. One of them decided the world was more loving than God, so he deconstructed his faith. One ditched his wife and kids and ran away into a homosexual lifestyle. One of our elders told me a similar story recently about a friend of his who started believing the lies of the world that the Bible was harsh and oppressive. So she began a journey of deconstructing her faith. Now, she didn't renounce it outright, not at first. But she let the world's criticism of the Bible take root in her heart. She started thinking the culture was right and God was wrong. She started saying, give me Jesus, but not the church. Give me Jesus, but not the Bible. Until eventually she didn't want Jesus anymore. And she renounced the faith. She got a divorce and she is now living in homosexuality. Friends, if you went back 10 years with any of these people and said, this is where you're going to wind up, they would have all said, no way, I'm solid. But drift got a hold of them, and it eventually exposed their professions of faith as false. 
Don't think this couldn't be you. This could be any of us. And what is the outcome if we get to the end of our lives and we find out we really didn't believe in Jesus? The same inescapable catastrophe that meets all who reject the gospel. The wrath of God. So we must examine ourselves to make sure that we're truly in the faith. We must counteract drift when we become aware of it. We must remain where God wants us to be. And where is that? Our author says we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. He says must. This is a necessity. This is not optional. Friends, we need to get serious about the gospel and more serious than we have been before. We need to hold fast to Jesus and not depart from him. We need to immerse our minds in God's word by reading it and listening to it taught and thinking about it. We need to get serious about prayer because it's in prayer that we'll see the reality and goodness of God most clearly as he answers our prayers. We need to war against personal sin and be merciless with it. We need to keep away from temptations that are liable to trip us up. When we stumble, and we will, we've got to run back to Jesus. And we need to gather together with other believers. Because life is hard, and the church community is a vital resource God has given us to keep us growing and to keep us in the faith. You know, in this whole book of Hebrews, there's just one point in time where the author says, let me tell you how I know you're drifting, and it's in Hebrews 10, when he says that some in the Hebrew congregation were neglecting to meet together. That's how he knows there's drift, by people not being in the community. Friends, the time draws short. The stakes are just so high. Let us keep a close watch on ourselves and get more serious about the gospel. Let it shape our lives more than we have before. Let us draw near to Jesus and stay there because that is safety. 1 John 2.24 says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and the Father.